Well, good evening. I'm excited that you all are here tonight. I was just saying it's it's just really fun that you would make the decision to create the space. To sp- Hopefully you all went out to dinner beforehand or you're going to go out to dinner afterwards and talk about what you liked and didn't like. It's all good. And uh, I told Tammy beforehand, it doesn't make any sense for us to all to get together in a room like this and me not tell the truth. So I'm going to talk about something I don't talk about very often on, sta- on stage, which is a season in which I- we had some challenges and some lessons I learned in those challenges. So I promise I'm going to get to that part. But I wanted to start to, by just introducing myself to those of you I have never met yet before and just tell you some of the context with which these stories took place. So I grew up here in Cincinnati, um, over by the Kings Island area. I went to Indiana University, then my husband and I, in 1997, uh, moved to Monterey, Mexico, where we lived for 15 years. We, were, we had been teachers in the city beforehand. I was over in the Sycamore School District. He was a teacher at Cincinnati Hills Christian Academy. And because we had the summers free, we took kids on mission trips in the summertime. And the summer of 96, the summer before we moved, we were on a mission trip that was just really quite terrible. We had partnered with a group, um, and they had asked us to paint a wall around a church in a city called Queretaro, Mexico. And we had painted the wall from blue to green, which is okay, except for the year before we'd painted it from green to blue. And it, like the students we brought weren't very inspired. I wanted them to catch a glimpse of what was going on around the world and that the world was big and that people they had things to offer the world they had things in common with the world and all we really were seeing were our paintbrushes and so the day before we left um i was complaining i'm just again i'm tonight is going to be a night of total transparency so no pretty way to say it i was complaining to my husband like we cannot go home with these students and not have done and seen more of what's happening in the city and you know and he was probably tired of my complaining and he looked over at me goes i don't know what to tell you beth do you think there are any orphanages in this city? And I was like, I don't know, but let's go find out. So don't miss this detail that we left our students in the hands of very capable adults. And then we jumped into a taxi cab. And we just started to say orphan with a Spanish accent. That's really the, I mean, I didn't have any language skills. <laughs> so we were just like, el orfano, el orfanatorio, el orfanatorio. And eventually the cab driver figured out what we wanted. And he took us to an orphanage and then he left us because that's what cab drivers do. And... I looked over at my husband, Todd, and I'm like, do you even know the name of the street that church is on? And do we have enough pesos to pay somebody to take us back? And if these people answer the door, are we even going to know what to say to them? And we should have been in this moment of total panic. But we got this sense of peace. That's the only way I can describe it. This like sense of settle or calm that came over us. So as it did, I pounded on the front door and pushed him in front of me because he had had a year at Madeira High School of Spanish. And I thought, you, you're better. <laughs> you, you got a better eyes than I do. And so the door opened and he told this man in some broken Spanish that we have three things in our hand. We had 200 US dollars, 20 able-bodied high school kids, and one complete day left on our trip. And if he could have access to those resources, what would he do with them? And the guy told us that the front windows were all broken and the kids hadn't had meat in over a year. And if we wanted to come back the next day to remedy all of that, we could. And we thought that, I certainly thought that sounded way better than painting. So the next day we came back, Ty went off to fix the windows. And I sat up behind this griddle where we had bought enough hamburgers that we thought were going to last the kids for, I mean, maybe a month or about 50 kids in this orphanage. And I was, I had no system, like who had eaten and who hadn't eaten and how many of them eaten. They were just coming up to the griddle and I was giving them a burger and they were happy and I was happy. And that little scene continued. Then Todd finished with the window and he came over and he was watching us for a minute. And he pointed out this like four-year-old girl. And he said, do you see that little girl? And I was like, oh my gosh, I can't get my eyes off her. She is the cutest thing I've ever seen. And he's like, well, I think you took your eyes off of her a few times because she's been in your line like five times. And I don't know any preschoolers who can eat that many burgers. So why don't you follow her and find out where everything's going? So the next time she came up for one, I grabbed her hands and we began to walk somewhere. I didn't know where we were going, but we ended up in the doorframe of her dorm room. She dropped my hand and I could see in that vantage point that she scampered off with her preschool buddies and there they were all helping each other lift up their mattresses and they were sticking those burgers underneath them. So I called Todd over to that doorframe and we just had this conversation about who did we know in the city of Cincinnati who would buy a hamburger for an orphan if they knew how to get it to them. And I, we have since called that conversation our defining moment. I had no idea my whole life was about to change. He and I had these cute little matching SUVs and the great, cutest little condo you ever saw. And I, I had everything I thought was going to happen in my life already mapped out in my mind. But we came back home the next day to, um, to Cincinnati and everything about my life never looked the same. I, I kept saying it felt like I was sitting 
on a burr in my saddle. Like I just didn't get comfortable anymore. So we were in this little tiny season where we had um, double income and no kids. So we had more money than we needed. I today have 10 children. So that feels like a long time ago, but yeah, this is a portion of my family. So yeah, there's not a lot of extra money just hanging around with all those little people, but this was a season before any of them came around. And so we said, okay, well, I'll tell you what, let's just live on one of our salaries. The other one we'll put in a bank account. And then, you know, at the end of a year, we'll be sitting on some flexibility that might give us the opportunity to respond to that which we saw the year before in whatever way this year it feels clear. So at the end of that school year, we were sitting on what we thought was a treasure. I mean, it was one year of a teaching salary, so you know about the size of my treasure. But it felt to us like this is a treasure. And so we made what did not seem like that crazy of a decision at the time. We made the decision we were just going to move to Mexico with this money. And we were going to, like, learn the language and try to understand the culture of the hurt child and build relationships, maybe start a foundation. So uh, this is, like, before the Internet. So I went to... Uh, Joseph Beth bookstores and I bought a book about how to live in another country and in it they said when you travel take cash with you in small denominations because it's the easiest way for you to be able to transfer it in the currency so I went to my local bank here and I told them I would like to withdraw my entire account in cash uh, preferably small bills and uh, (laughs) when you do that you alert the bank manager so he comes out and he's like so what are you doing with all your money and I said, I'm moving to Mexico. And uh, he was like, why don't you come back in my office for a minute? So I went back to tell him a little bit about what we were doing. And at the end of our conversation, he convinced me to turn that account into traveler's checks, something that we don't even really use today. But I ended up withdrawing that account in traveler's checks. I put those in my backpack. That backpack went in a safe, which sat in the middle of our Sousa Trooper. And we drove that three days from Cincinnati, Ohio to where we landed in Monterey, Mexico. And the idea had been that we were going to just withdraw traveler's checks every week for what we thought our expenses would be, go transfer those into pesos and live as long as we could, hopefully for the year. But eight days into our time there, everything was hard. The grocery store was hard. Traffic was hard. The heat was hard. Everything was hard. And the idea of the idea of going to a bank and creating another errand for ourselves was like, that's crazy town. We're not doing this every week. Let's take all these traveler's checks, turn them all into pesos, put those pesos back in our safe, and we'll just have like our own little ATM that we'll live off of for the year. So I put those traveler's checks back in my backpack, took that backpack into a bank called Bonorte there in downtown Monterey, city of about 6 million people, great big city. And it was my turn in front of the teller. And in a third world country, if you've ever been to a bank in one of those countries, there's like thick glass between you and the teller. And they have like these little squawk boxes between us. And I just got all the traveler's checks out and I pushed them underneath a little divot in the window. And the lady began to give me some instructions. I had no idea what she was saying to me. I now know she was saying something like, Tienes que firmar tu nombre, por favor, ponte la nombre a la línea, por favor. It was like Chinese to me. Like I had no idea what she was saying. And she returned all those checks with her instructions. And so I looked over at Todd kind of overconfidently, and I said, I think she just wants our IDs or something. Let's give her our passports. So I put those on top of the checks, and I gave them back to her. But that was not what she wanted. So she did to me what people do when they don't um, think you understand them. She got really loud and really slow. And she began to repeat herself over and over again. Firma tu nombre a la línea, tienes que poner tu nombre a la línea, tienes que poner la nombre allá en la línea, firma la nombre en la línea, she's just going on and on. And I said to Todd, if these things don't turn into pesos, we can't even drive back to Ohio. So I kind of irrationally shoved them towards her, to which she returned them, and we were having this like little match, and people are starting to laugh in the bank. And finally, she said a word hysterically that I was like, oh my gosh, I heard that word this week. So I said to Todd, give me pen and paper. So he hands me pen and paper, and I wrote the word I heard her say, nombre on this piece of paper and I showed it to her through the glass and she's like, mm-hmm. And then she points to the line at the bottom of the checks and I picked up my pen and I wrote on every one of those lines the word nombre, nombre. <laughs> so she was absolutely inviting me to sign my name on those checks and instead I wrote the word name in Spanish. So, yeah. So one of my favorite verses in the Bible talks about how It says, do not despise these small beginnings because God rejoices just to see it begin. If I just told you today, he and I run an organization that's now in multiple countries on several continents. We'll transfer $11 million this year around the world in rupee and iron peso. If I just told you that chapter is part of my introduction, you might miss the point and you might give 
credit to the wrong person. Nobody can give credit to the girl who couldn't even sign a traveler's check. Like, I think that when we live life, we live them in seasons and in chapters, and they build on each other. And the experiences I had had, 0 to 25, prepared me fully for that international adventure that we had in the 15 years that followed. And that international adventure that we had and the things that God grew up in us and experiences that we had and the ways in which we were forced to grow and develop and learn and and fall down and all the things that happened in that season prepared me totally for the season I'm going to share a little bit about with you tonight. So in 2016, I had a first cousin give me a call. Um, I loved her very much, and she, I knew that she was suffering from breast cancer. And I told her um, how, you know, she lives in Alaska, and I was like, I wish you were closer, and we've been thinking about you so much. I lost my father um, over 20 years ago to a, a blood cancer called multiple, a bone cancer called multiple myeloma. And I just, when cancer touches you in a, in a personal family of origin kind of way you just you don't ever forget it and so every subsequent story of anyone i ever heard after that who was struggling with cancer i had a unique empathy and sympathy um, for their story because of what it is our family went through so just knowing all of my own experiences i just was saying on the phone i'm so sorry for you and we've been thinking about you quite a bit and she said i just um tested positive for the BRCA2 gene do you know anything about BRCA2 and I was like, I mean, I think I read in People magazine on an airplane that Angelina Jolie had it. I mean, is this, are we talking about the same thing? And she said, well, probably you should get more medical information than what you read in People magazine. <laughs> but yes, that is, uh, Angelina Jolie did test positive for BRCA1 and took prophylactic measures in order to prevent the kind of cancers that took her mom. And she said, Beth, I'm positive for BRCA2 and you're a first Um, degree relative and your father's cancer is also a BRCA cancer and so I would highly encourage you to get tested. I did that um, later that same fall and was indeed tested positive and and decided almost immediately to go through those same prophylactic measures that Angelina Jolie did and I um, had a double mastectomy and a hysterectomy that same year. So this is the season that I'm talking about and while um, breast cancer and or even a health crisis may not be a story that you have um, experienced or that you are currently experiencing. It maybe is not your body that's broken down, but all of us are going to go through challenges where relationships break down, our bank accounts break down, our bodies break down, our marriages break down. Like things are in a they're in a constant state of of breaking down. That's just part of what life looks like on this earth. And so as I walked into this storyline, I said to my husband, um, we, we have an opportunity. We have an opportunity to walk through this season and get on the other side and be more connected to each other, to our family, and to the God that we love if we do this well. And that's the result I want to. And I want to get on the other side of this and say to myself, this was the best thing that has ever happened to me. I don't want to whine and complain and see the negative. I want to I want to perpetually and hopefully see the glass half full. So there's six little lessons that I'm going to walk through tonight. Some of them are longer and shorter. Um, I wrote them all down. They're on a list you can have for free outside. So you can take notes if you want to. Or you can get on your phone and be on your social media account. I'll look like you're taking notes. But these are the, these are some of the stories. The first one is just, gosh, I learned this year, that year, that people matter how many times do we have nudges that we're supposed to call someone or we should run some flowers or cookies or a pie or turkey or, 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 or invite someone to coffee and we think to ourselves we, we don't follow through on that nudge, that we're too busy? I will never forget the people that stopped by my house and they brought me meals and soft robes and sparkling water because I like that and they, they brought me company and they were not afraid to wander into my house with my you know nasty hair and my pajamas for four straight months and they entered into my life and if I'm too busy for people what exactly is it that I'm doing? And they that season I developed a, a particular compassion for people that were unafraid to walk towards what might feel like a a grumpy or grouchy or in pain or ungrateful person. And 
So Todd and I built a house this um, that's that next year in a neighborhood that we were the first house in the development. I don't know if any of you have ever built a house in a new development before, but we were like maybe the first or second house that closed there. So there were no street signs. There were no definitely no stop signs when we moved into this giant cow field. Today, it's, you know, we have hundreds of houses as our neighbors, but in the beginning, it was just us. And I had just finished this season. We had, were moving, we were in this house and, um, I, the, the developer put a stop sign just two driveways down from my home. And I want to be totally honest and tell you that earlier in the day, I came to a complete stop at this stop sign. But later that night, I was driving one of my kids home from soccer, and I had been driving for a couple of years now in this neighborhood, and I had not stopped two driveways down from my house to a complete stop. So I was kind of on automatic pilot. For many, many years with all those kids that you saw in that picture, I drove cars the size of small houses. But now that they all have license, I actually drive this 20-year-old two-seater convertible. It's very fun. And so I was driving this little car. The top was down. The radio was on. I was on the phone, and my son was next to me, and we were almost home. So my multitasking self, I was telling him, take a shower and go inside and eat your dinner. And I just blew through this stop sign. And I kind of in the back of my mind could tell that somebody was yelling at me. But I wasn't fully registering it until we got in the garage and I looked over at Tyler and I'm like, was someone just yelling at me? And he's like, yeah, yeah, I I heard that too. He was actually kind of excited about that. And I said, well, you go inside. I'm going to go find out what's going on. So I walk out of my garage into my driveway and one of my neighbors was out there and I said, did you just yell something to me maybe? And he said, no, that's our new neighbor. He just moved in right over there. He's been standing at the stop sign all day yelling at people, not stopping. Traffic safety is quite important to him. And I was like, oh my gosh, I haven't even met him yet. And uh, I walked into the house and I was like, first of all, to all my teenage drivers who were assembled in the kitchen, I was like, you all need to, con- you need to stop at that stop sign. Do you understand me? Because I just upset a neighbor. And then I said, like, I, I, people matter. I have, I, I live on top of the, the truth and the value that people matter. And I want this man that I don't even know to know that he matters to me. What do you think I can do? to communicate to him that I'm sorry and that he, his, his desires have value to me. And they, I said, so my question was like, what do you think I should do? And they're like, what should you do to our neighbor that just yelled at you for going through the stop sign? Like they grew up on a steady diet of like YouTube. They had all kinds of suggestions of things I should do, you know? <laughs> and I was like, but like, we're supposed to live differently. I, I want to live differently. I want people in my life to understand who they are and how we see them. I want to represent the God that we love. I'm like, do you have any ideas? Nobody had any ideas. So I went to bed that night, like not sure what to do. I woke up in the morning. I thought to myself, I make a pretty good chocolate chip cookie. So, I mean, I'm thinking I'm going to make him some cookies. So I got on Pinterest and I printed off these little stop signs that look like, <laughs> and I put them into the cookie. And so, um, yeah, and so I went across the door, the street, and I knocked on the door, and um, he came to the door, and of course he didn't recognize me because the night before I'd gone flying by him. And so I said, hi, my name is Beth Guckenberger, and I live in that red house over there, and I think last night I upset you, and I just wanted to say that I'm sorry. And I handed him my cookies, and I'm telling you, he was not expecting that. And that's really all I had planned. There's this passage in the Bible where God is talking to one of his favorite people and he's telling them about how he wants them to create space, a place for, the, for him to dwell amongst his people. And he tells them as he's, as he's giving them these instructions in the book of Exodus, he's like, if you just make a space for me, I'll come and fill the space. I'll come and actually rest among you so that I can give you wisdom and insight and encouragement. Like, I, I want to be with you. I'm not a God who's far away. I want to be a God with you. And I think that's what he says to, to us today in 2018, whatever the difficult circumstances we find ourselves in, God says to us today, if we make space for him, he wants to come and be in it with us. He wants to be with us. So I had told God, I'm going to make the cookies and I'm going to ring the doorbell, but then I'm going to make space for you. And then you come and do all the things that you do as a God. And so I, that's exactly what I did. And so he kind of stammered for a minute and then he began to share with me a little bit about his life. Because you can imagine the kind of person, you know, what he, all the angsty, angsty he had going on inside of him that would cause a brand new neighbor to stand at a stop sign and yell at complete strangers. Like, 
he had some stuff going on inside of him. So as I just asked him about his life, he, he began to share. We talked on that front porch for uh, almost an hour. I'm positive he probably feels like he ever shared with me. But I feel like it was a moment in time where I got to look at him and say, like, I, I hear you. I see you. Today I gave a, a, a webinar online about trauma. And there's all kinds of beautiful brain research about trauma that we do in our work with orphans and vulnerable children. And this is just like a little a little science tip that is just fascinating. First of all, listening actually heals the brain. If when we listen to each other in an empathetic state, things happen at that biochemistry level that begins to create new synapses and and cause cortisol levels to, to lower. So we have this part of our brain in the front that's called the frontal cortex. That's where we do problem solving and cause and effect and critical thinking. It's a very important part of our brain. And then we have these two little almond-shaped glands behind our ears called our amygdala. And that's, that's where our fear resides. That's where fight and flight and freeze all happens. And when we feel threatened in some way, relationally or physically, when, when we feel in a fear state, our brain naturally starts to shut down, conserve energy because it's protecting itself. And it goes into that amygdala space, that part of our brain that's called the fear brain. And it actually cuts off our frontal cortex. So when we're afraid, we can't critically think. We can't cause an effect. We can't problem solve because we're back here in our amygdala. And the way that you reactivate that frontal cortex is you either engage in play. Play begins to release all the right kind of uh, chemicals that that re-engage those synapses or we have someone that sits and listens to us and as we process this then all those cortisol levels lower it's, it's just a fascinating thing listening actually heals the brain if we listened to each other what kind of healing could we start to see in our lives and in our children's lives i learned that god doesn't waste a thing I, I had a brand new adopted son when this happened and I he was uh, 12 years old and I was thinking to myself This is such bad timing for me to go out of commission because that boy needs me to be in double time not in half time But when he looks back on that season, he's he's like frankly like could you please have another surgery? Because first of all people brought us food every day and that always involved dessert. I was I was always I had zero outside commitments. I was fully and totally present at all times and I think to myself, gosh, God certainly didn't cause that season so that I would be present in those ways. That's not how he works. But he certainly used that season and kept redeeming it in it. That's what he does in the middle of storylines that we don't like and that we don't understand. He uses those very stories to grow things up in us and to redeem them in us. And to the point that at the end of it, I'm like, man, that was so good for Tyler that I had this storyline. like, Almost like, and God always has more than one thing going on at a time. Like that season was not just for Tyler, but it was also for him. I, I met this woman about um, a year ago. I actually had met her when she was a teenager, but I don't really remember it. Um, when I was living in Mexico those 15 years, we hosted a lot of teens that would come and stay with us and serve alongside in the orphanages. And this woman came to us 15 years ago as a 13-year-old girl. And I, we were sitting in this circle time and I was doing a teaching about orphans and the 163 million of them live around the world and what, what kind of intervention is needed in order for them to change their life. And as an earnest little 13-year-old, she heard all of those words and made a decision in her heart that she was going to live differently because of what she had seen in the Mexican orphanages. That's lovely. I lost track of her at that point. Fast forward 15 years later, she's a 28-year-old here in the city of Cincinnati, and she came to a back-to-back -back event we had last year, our 20th anniversary. She started out with like, hey, do you remember me? Which is not my favorite first line. And I was like, remind me. And uh, she's, she put her hair in little pigtails, and she's like, does this look familiar? No, not so much. But, um, she said, I made a decision to live differently, and so I just want you to know that my husband and I are foster parents here in Hamilton County, and we foster medically fragile infants. And then she opened up her little coat, and she had this impossibly tiny little baby hanging on her. And she said, um, I just want you to know that, that I have made a decision to live differently because of an experience I had, and, I, and, and I'm, I just want you to know. And I was like, oh my gosh. The whole night, I kept going around and telling people, like, I love that. I love that 
somebody can come in and out of our lives and they can be impacted by a story or an experience or words that then put them on a trajectory that maybe we don't even know about, but God does. And I was like, I was telling people all night about her. I didn't see her again until about a month ago. I was somewhere speaking and she came up to me and I, this time I definitely remembered her. And my first question to her was, how many babies have you had since the last time I saw you? She said, actually, we've been just taking care of the same little girl that you saw me with. And most of this year, we had planned to have her um, join our family through adoption. And I said, oh, that's so exciting. And she said, well, but then her mother began to turn her life around. And, well, this, this, this year, this last few months, the county has decided to put a reunification plan back in place. And she now um, is going to go home next week to be permanently with her, her mother. And I, I just said, how are you doing with that? She's like, well... At first, I thought my mission was to take care of little babies, vulnerable children in the world who are without parents. And so when I thought that was my mission and that got changed, then I was like, then there's no point. Then, then this is, this is like I, I'm losing that this is, a, this is a loss. And she was like, but here's what I, I'm realizing. I'm realizing, I'm realizing that that wasn't my mission, that actually that the mission was bigger than that and that the same kind of love that I was supposed to give to that little girl, maybe God feels that same way about her mother. Maybe I should be expressing the heart and the, and the love that I was expressing to that little girl. Maybe I'm supposed to express that to that mother. She said, so I began to build a relationship with that mother and this last week she asked me if I would be the godmother of that little baby. And I said, here's what I love. I love that God so loves the world, it tells us in our Bibles, that he so loved a woman in Cincinnati in 2018 that he put in the heart of a 13-year-old girl 15 years ago a compassion, a compulsion to express what she was feeling inside, the decisions she'd made in her heart, in her mind, to activate her life on behalf of someone outside of herself. And that that mission wasn't lost when, when it changed courses. I think sometimes in hard storylines, we get so fixated on how we anticipate something ending. And so when it happens faster than we wanted or not fast enough or differently than we planned, we think to ourselves, like, are you in control? Are you even paying attention in that? But really, that, that vulnerability that she was expressing in the, middle, in the middle of it, vulnerability actually is the birthplace of maturity. And her mission actually matured as she listened and, and grew in that way. And man, I learned that lesson the hard way. Todd and I were foster parents for many, many years um, for teenage girls, which that is not a job for the faint of heart. And uh, most of them were delightfully pleasant, but one of them was really not so much. Um, I met her when she was three, and she came full-time into my family when she was 12. And the story I'm going to tell you happened when she was 15. So she had been there for a while. In fact, I used to say just privately to my friends that she was more work than the other at the time eight children I had combined. I don't know if you've ever been around a teenage girl with an attitude, but she would kind of walk in the room with like a little bit of like a, like just like a snarl. And she brought tension into most of the rooms that I was in. And so I knew that all the resources, all the tools I had in my tool belt, they weren't working. I needed to change my system. So I called the psychologist out of Texas, a man named Dr. Kyle Miller. I said... Dr. Miller, I want to invite you into my house. I want you to listen to every conversation. I want you to ask any question, open any closet. I want to get through this difficult story that I'm in right now, and I need some counsel, some outside wisdom to get there. Would you come? And so he came. He listened to us and watched us parent her for three days. On the third day, she walked out of her room getting ready to go to school, and she had this rocking 15-year-old body, and she had this tiny little mini skirt. I was like, you cannot go to school like that. So she huffed and puffed and went back in her room and she put on something longer and this teeny tiny little tank top and she comes out. I was like, also not okay. She goes back in, comes outside eventually in something that I'd bought her. I'm like, oh, you look adorable. Have a great day at school. But she walked out of my front door and I knew and she knew that I knew that underneath the outfit that she had on, she had what she really wanted. And as soon as she walked out the door and around the corner, she ripped that outer layer off and went to school exactly how she wanted. And I said to Dr. Miller, she won and she knows she won. And she is delighting in the fact that she knows she won and that I lost. And I'm like, what do I do? And he got out a napkin and he drew me a piece of paper. He drew on this napkin, this picture that I'm going to show you here of a tree. He said, I want you to imagine, Beth, that all of her attitude and actions, they're like the top of a tree. 
And he said, I've watched you for three days. And every 100% of your conversations are regarding her attitude and actions. You're telling her to get off the internet and stop looking at you that way and do her dishes and go to bed and don't talk to her boyfriend and finish her homework. Or like, he's like, all of the choices, all of the attitude and actions that she has, they stem from her understanding of herself. So the reason that little girl walked out of here in a miniskirt is because she has a broken self-image. She, her name is Carolina. She thinks that Carolina plus a short skirt is what has value. That's why she walked out of the house like that. He said, and her understanding of who she is comes from her understanding of truth. And she has some lies down there in that garden that are impacting the way she sees herself, which are flourishing out there in attitude and actions. And if all you ever do is talk to her about her attitude and actions, he's like, do you know anything about horticulture? If you cut off the top of a tree, guess how it grows back? Twice as strong. I was like, oh, can I get a witness? That is what our storehouse looks like right now. (laughs) And he said, I have a prescription for you. I want you to spend the next 90 days not talking to her about her attitude and actions unless she's going to hurt herself or somebody else. And just spend 100% of the airtime talking to her about the things that you know for sure to be true. And I'm telling you, friends, I I was not that good at this. I thought I was going to be awesome, and I was not awesome. She came home the very next day. I whined a bit to him, and then I finally said, okay, I'll do it. She came home the next day to tell me how totally lame our spring break plans were. And at the tip of my tongue was, you know why my spring break plans are lame? Because you are a ward of the state. And I can't even take you out of the state lines. Without you, I'd be going to an ocean somewhere. But I didn't, that would not have really accomplished my goals. (laughs) So all I said was, oh, you know what? What we have going on, it has, there's a hope and a future in it. Which I knew I was quoting a truth that's found in the Bible. I didn't tell her, hey, it's found right here. And this is what the prophet says. Like I didn't get all fancy on her. I just told her something that I knew was to be true that was hopeful and helpful. Maybe a week after that, she came home to tell me about this enormous assignment, like 95 pages, 17 poster boards, whatever, due in the morning. And um, <laughs> man, I had a few thoughts about that. And, uh, but I just said to her, you know what? He's before all things and in him. All things will hold together. Let's just get started. I knew I was quoting a verse from the book of life from the Bible that we believe to be true. I didn't tell her that. I just said those things. Here's what started to happen over the next 90 days. The Bible talks about how it's the word is like honey. It's sweet to the taste. She started to walk in my house, and because the things that were coming out of my mouth were truth with a capital T, they were sweet to the taste, she began to kind of saddle up to me. And it wasn't like, you know, we just held hands and were like sorority sisters, but all of a sudden the animosity and antig- and the, the sense of the spirit of tension was dissipating in my house. Finally, at the end of that time, she made a decision to give her life to God, which was a radical decision that I think would have only happened because we created space for her to really evaluate her life. Now that's a daily challenge for me. I want to live in the most important relationships of my life, not looking at their attitude and actions and just responding to it. I mean, that little tree is like the best little marriage tip I've ever had because when I see an attitude and action of my husband that I don't like so much, I have two choices. I can rise up and meet it, right? And then then we're off to the races. (laughs) Or I can decide, you know what? Something's going on in his life and it's coming from some kind of false understanding of who he is. That's coming from some lie that's in his garden. I want to participate with God and putting truth into his garden, which makes him see himself in a better way, which makes him act and, and, and have attitudes in a better way. Like, I want the fruit of that, so I've got to participate in the labor of it. Uh, I learned in this season that gr- the spirit of gratitude and gratefulness, it changes everything. At my dinner table every night, we answer these two questions. What was your happy and what was your crappy? And, <laughs> and as we did that exchange of what was our crappy and what was our happy, I always made sure that I could frame my doctor's appointment or my symptoms in a way that demonstrated gratefulness. My Two of my children were seniors in high school, and there was a part of me that was grieving that I was missing out on some of their senior year activities because of all this. In fact, my son um, went on to play uh, college football, so he and my daughter went to the same university. I'm going to tell this story. This is not really allowed to be told in churches, but I don't think anyone's going to come kick me off. But So he, I'm just going to tell you the truth, because here we are. So I was time to take um, our kids to college, and um, 
and gosh dang it, my mother's in the house, so she's going to hear this for the first time. But anyway, so we go, and it was time to drop my son off at college, and that, like we have this like whole football family day or whatever, and at the end of it, the coach said all of a sudden, I mean, like, all of a sudden, like, they were enlisting in the military. Okay, freshman parents, you can circle up with your boys. You have about five minutes. Boys, I need you in the locker room. Um, parents, you can say goodbye. I was like, you've got to be kidding me. Like, I'm going to say goodbye to my freshman son right now to college. I, I am not ready for this. I had no warning for this. I, we did not have the year I was planning before this. I know the answer is no. And I, my son is much bigger than I am. And I just pounded him on the chest. And I said, explicative. I'm not ready for you to go yet. And he whipped his head over to look at his dad because he'd never heard his mama in his 18 years ever use profanity before. And he was like, holy cow, this is going to be bad. Mama's cussing. He looks at his dad and his dad was crying. And he'd never seen his dad cry in his 18 years. I now know he called his sister on our way home and said, college is going to be way worse than we thought because mama's cussing and dad is crying. <laughs> like, 30 days later, it was time to drop our daughter off to the same university. And as we were saying goodbye to her, she's like, I don't get a cuss word. I don't get any tears. Like, what's, what's the big deal? And I said, oh, here's the deal. I'm in a much better place now because <laughs> I'm grateful for what it is that we, <laughs> I'm grateful for the place that my head has gotten in the right, in the right place. I'm prepared. Like, we've got to give ourselves space to be grateful for the things and the changes in our life that we that we can't anticipate and we certainly can't control. I learned that pain makes us mean. I don't know if, if you've ever already learned that lesson. I'm not really a mean person. So I, it was a, quite a surprise to my family when um, I began to get kind of grumpy, like right as medications were wearing off or whatever. And um, I, a few months after my surgeries, I was sitting in my son's football game and I saw an older woman who was being very unkind to what I think was her grandson. And the version of Beth that was before this season would have been pretty critical of that lady. In fact, I probably would have snuck that kid like a lollipop or a Hot Wheels car, and I would have been sitting there silently judging her. But as I was listening to her be unkind and unthoughtful to that boy, I thought to myself, I wonder where she's hurting. Because pain can, man, it can make us mean. We, we've learned in our trauma training that we work with orphans, but it's all true about every last one of us, that anger in all of its forms. So think, I mean, maybe you have a really lovely temperament and anger for you looks more passive or some of you are fiery and some of your anger looks quite aggressive. But no matter what it is, anger, which we can feel and express in seasons of challenge and in hard, anger is a secondary emotion and it always sits on the primary emotion of fear. The first time that we learned this in a training, the man said to us, has any of you ever lost a child in a grocery store? To like, which like three of us raised our hand. And uh, I lost my son Josh in a grocery store in another country. And I was sure like four seconds later, he was going to be human trafficked. I mean, I was a mess when I couldn't find him. And I was looking all around him. He was over by the bananas. When I finally found him, I wasn't like, oh, buddy, I'm so glad I found you. Would you like a bunch of these bananas? I mean, I was like, what are you doing? I told you to see what you're doing. Like I was... I was out of my mind. I looked like I was crazy irate, but really inside of my heart, I was very afraid. So Todd and I were talking about this idea of anger sitting on top of fear and the way that it manifests itself in the angry children that we spend time with and in the orphanages and the communities that we serve in. But then we were talking about the, the nature of human, the human heart. And he said to me, um, what if the next time that you and I are in a fight, one of us has the presence of mind to ask the other one what we're afraid of? I was like, well, that sounds really good in theory. Let's see how that works. So <clears throat> we were building this house. And uh, we began to have a conversation one night about whether or not the guest room that we were putting into the house should have a private bath. And he thought it should, and I thought it shouldn't. And we started talking out about a bathroom, but like literally a hot second later, we were talking about his mother. You know how that works? Like, <laughs> and uh, I was getting a little worked up. And um, he had the presence of mind to say to me, Beth, you sound really angry. Would you like to tell me what you're afraid of? No, I, no thank you very much. I would not like to tell you what I'm afraid of. <laughs> but I, I stopped, and I was like, oh, I'm afraid we can't afford it. And he's like, oh, well, I wouldn't even brought it up. We can't afford it. And he got out these little spreadsheets and he showed me everything. And I was like, okay, well, in that case, I'd like some brushed nickel in the whole bathroom. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, really, anger? Anger is really about fear. Later that fall, after my um, surgeries had been uh, really pretty fully recovered, 
I, I had learned, I don't know if this ever happens to any of you, but I, I think pretty good thoughts in the daytime, like rainbows and unicorn kind of things. Like I'm, I'm, I'm pretty much in the daytime thinking things are going to all work out. You know, I heard we're getting two to four inches of snow next Tuesday. I'm like, it's going to be fine. Like I just pretty much always, you know, have like a good little spirit about me. But sometimes in the dark at night, I can think thoughts that I would never entertain in the daytime. Does anybody ever think things at night that you wouldn't think in the daytime? Like, you know, like my husband's going to jail. My kids are all dying. Like, like I just like just catastrophic kind of thinking. And during my surgeries, I wasn't, I didn't have the attention span and I didn't have the wherewithal to read my Bible on a very regular basis. And this girl without her Bible is not very pretty. And so when those thoughts were coming to me at night, I didn't have the strength really to fight them off in the way that I wanted to. And so one night I was in the dark in my room, woke up, had these bad thoughts. And I was like, oh my gosh, I need my Bible. But um, I didn't want to get out of bed and I really couldn't really get out of bed. So I reached over next to my nightstand was my, my phone. I pulled it up and I opened up on my phone. I have a Bible app, real easy to use. I opened it up and I noticed for the first time there was an audio feature. And my Bible was already in a book that talked about Jesus. And the books that talk about Jesus are pretty much just dialogue, just words that he had said. So I hit play. So I'm in the dark. And the person that reads the audio app on my phone is a man. So I'm in the dark on the phone. And it's like Jesus himself starts talking to me through my phone. (laughs) And I'm listening to his words. And my heart is kind of calming down. And I'm like, this is such a cool trick. So I began to use that as a tool. And I would listen to my Bible sometimes when I fell asleep at night. I would listen to it sometimes on the way to a doctor's appointment. Like I just, I just used that when I didn't feel like reading my Bible. I didn't know what to read. I didn't know what to study. I didn't, whatever. I just would like let it, I would let it just happen to me. So I was using that tool all through the spring, all through the summer, into the fall. And one Saturday night, Todd and I were having this discussion that, kind of escalated a little bit. Maybe you all never have escalation in any of your conflicts, but I wanted my whole house to just freeze. Like I wanted every one of those kids to just stop so he and I could work things out, but they continued to live life. And so we moved our conversation into our bedroom and eventually my uh, 16 year old son knocked on the door. He needed a ride to a basketball game. So Todd looked at me and he's like, I'll be right back. I'm like, no problem. I'll be right here. And I was thinking to myself, you go get in that car, give me 15 minutes, I'm regrouping, and I'm coming back twice as hard. Like, that's literally what I was thinking. I'm just telling you the truth. Like, that, maybe you've never felt that way. I told you, I'm coming here tonight, and I'm telling you the truth. And uh, he left the room, and it didn't feel very good. Because talking that way, being angry, acknowledging my fears, pain making us mean, like, all that stuff, it doesn't feel very good. I don't know if any of you are in one of these hard seasons right now, but it you know when, you're, when you start to spiral into negative emotions and take out your feelings on the people around you. It doesn't feel very good. And so when he walked out of the room, I knew I needed my Bible. I knew I needed good words and I needed God's truths and my garden was all messed up and the attitude and actions didn't look good. Like I knew all those things. But I'm telling you, I did not want to sit down with a Bible study. But I had been using this tool. So I just got my phone out, laid on my bed and hit play. And I let that word of God come to me because I was not willing to go to it. And I'm just sitting there listening to it. He comes as barreling in the room 15 minutes later. But poor thing, you cannot come in and start yelling at your wife when she's laying on the bed listening to her Bible, right? Like you just can't. <laughs> so he comes in, just like settles down on the bed next to me. We're just listening quietly to the words. As soon as he stopped, he settled in. The very next verse we heard is a verse that comes out of the book of Mark and it says, a house divided against itself cannot stand. And it wasn't like all of a sudden we're like, oh my gosh, I totally see what you were saying. Like, I agree totally. Let's, I'm in. Like, it wasn't like our heads were in a different place, but man, were our hearts immediately united. That's what truth does. It, it just lifts you up out of the circumstance and gives you eyes to see something bigger than being right. Something bigger than, than having your way. We got connected in that way. The last, um, the last thing I learned in that season was just that rest is a choice, and it's a choice that we have available to us all the time. And in the absence of rest, um, 
healing can't happen. Healing happens in the margin. We have to create margin in our life and our relationships, that space I was talking about, for healing to occur. That's both true biologically as well as emotionally as well as spiritually. So this um, story I'm going to tell you happened, uh, well, 12 years ago. I, we were living in Mexico, and we used to go up to um, Texas oh, like every six or eight weeks. And we would buy what we called border goodies, like the kinds of things we couldn't buy in Mexico, like goldfish for my little kids and cheddar cheese for our date nights and like, like the kinds of things that just, for whatever reason, they're missing out on in Mexico. And we were there one Saturday, and we went to one of those big Texas outlets, like those outdoor outlets. And I was, you know, hauling my kids around. We were look, kind of window shopping. And I walked by a store that had this beautiful leather, like suede, lilac, cute purple purse and at this point with all those children every every bag I carried looked like kind of a combination of backpack and like army bag right I mean it had like solutions to everybody's problems 24 hours a day for all age groups it had like boots and sharpened number two pencils and like you know 18 granola bars like it just I wasn't really very fashionable in that season and so there was something about that purple purse that just probably called to me about a life that I dreamt maybe somebody else out there was living I could maybe one day live. Anyway, the first time I walked by, I was like, oh, that's a cute purse. The second time I walked by, I was like, I wonder what it feels like to touch that suede purse. <laughs> the third time I walked by, I was like, mm, it's, it actually even smells good. The fourth time I'm like, I'll take one of those, please. And uh, I spent more money than I should have, than I really had budgeted in my budget um, on a purse. And I carry, I had a little purple scarf on it. I carried that thing around the squatters' villages and orphanages that I was serving in a third world country like a ridiculous woman for the next several weeks until it was stolen out of my car. And I can remember when it was stolen, I thought to myself like, ugh, I shouldn't have ever done that. That was a waste of money. I knew better than that. In fact, I even told God I was sorry that I had spent my money that way. I'm just giving you some insight into that was not the right thinking, but that's the way I was thinking. And to further punish myself, I started to carry my eight-year-old daughter's purse. So I looked kind of ridiculous, like grown woman, little girl purse. But I was like, I, there was something about me that just wanted to give me what I thought I had coming. I carried that for a while until I was coming to Cincinnati to speak somewhere. And I remember landing at CVG thinking, oh my gosh, these people at this church are going to think I'm crazy, adult woman, little girl purse. Between the airport and the church, I'm going to stop somewhere and just replace this. To me at the time, the United States was like, fantasy land I was like purses probably grow on every tree here like I'll find a place where I can buy a purse it'll be no big deal I pull into the brand new Deerfield Town Center over there um, I was unfamiliar with that shopping center and I was just scanning the stores looking for some place I could buy a purse and there was there used to be a luggage store there I was like oh I bet they have bags I go in I see this cute leather backpack on the wall that was kind of a combination of like the practicality that I had long been accustomed to, but now the kind of cuteness that I had just gotten a taste of. So I'm like, this is perfect. So I grabbed the backpack and I go up to pay for it at the counter. And the lady told me how much it was going to cost. And it was the same amount as the purse that I had um, had stolen. I was like, oh no, I've learned this lesson before. I am not buying that. You can keep your purse, which I'm sure she was thinking there was a price tag on this, but <laughs> I left it and I... I went on to the church, and then eventually I came to my mom's house, where I spent the night that night, and that was my U.S. mailing address um, during that season. And I had a birthday since I'd last been here in the U.S. So there were some cards and gifts that were waiting there for me, and one of the gifts that was waiting for me was a package from my college roommate. So I sat on the edge of my childhood bed, and I was opening up the cards, and I got to her package, and I opened it up. And the first thing I said when I opened it up out loud to God was, you are always reintroducing yourself to me i was positive you did not care about purses because inside of that bag inside that that package was the leather backpack i had just held in my hands a few hours beforehand and i i I was just like you've got to be kidding so later that night i laid in bed and i just kept thinking about all the wasted emotional energy i had spent since I lost that purse, like beating myself up and being mad at that thief and all that business. And and I had since called my roommate in that time period and I found out that she'd actually purchased that backpack for me before I even had lost my little coach lilac purse. Which means that God had put into motion a solution to a problem I hadn't even had yet. I didn't know how to pray at the end of that. I just like laid in that bed and I could only think of one word to say over and over again. I just kept saying the word amen. This word amen 
It literally means so be it. It just felt really fitting to me. I just kept saying amen. Amen, amen, amen. I can't even believe it. Like, amen. And every time I said it, it felt like, it doesn't even make sense, but the word actually kind of felt pregnant. Like it was just full. Like, and every, and the more I said it, the more space it felt like I was creating. I was like, amen. Like you're in charge. I should trust you. Like you are already working on the solution to the problem. Amen. And eventually it got to the part where I could rarely pray. And I started to ask for things I wanted and confess the things I didn't do right. Like just a normal kind of prayer. The end of that, I just acknowledged who it was I was talking to. I was like, oh dear Jesus. And when I was done, I realized I had turned my prayers upside down. I actually started with the word amen. And I ended with the words, dear Jesus. That was 12 years ago. And I've prayed that way ever since. There is this confidence that has built in me over the last 12 years that i came to rely on in the season when i was struggling with the BRCA gene like amen whatever it is that's going to happen it's okay he's already at work i can trust him i know that he's sovereign i know that he's good i know that he's paying attention i know that he cares about the details i know he even cares about my purse like like a god like that i can trust And it was the word that I probably said the most in that year. And today when I find myself with big emotions of sadness or fear or anger or all the things that come up, because that's certainly not the only time that my body or my relationships or my finances or all the things that break down have broken down. We we have planes that don't show up on time and weather we weren't anticipating and bills come when we weren't looking for them and kids that don't behave when we like them to and hair that doesn't lay the right way. I mean, like all kinds of things can derail our days. Let's just be honest. And in all those days when I want one of those moments can take me in one of two directions, I can follow that thing down a dark path. And who knows what will happen there. Or I can just stop and the word that I say is amen. 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 You don't waste anything. Amen. I can be vulnerable and that will bring a growing up inside of me a maturity. Amen. Like people matter. Amen. I can align my heart with people. Amen. Amen. That word, amen. It has been the, the, the word that kind of realigns my heart, no matter what the story is. And because of amen, I, I'm not afraid of anything that comes tomorrow. I don't, I don't fear tomorrow. I don't fear circumstances. I don't wait for the other shoe to drop. I believe that he is at work on things that we can't even see, but we can totally trust him in. Thank you. Good night.